Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be enlightening. It's very really frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Welcome, everyone, to the 826LA Writing Panel Series, an informal chat about, tonight, television writing and the business of writing for television. My name is Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, a stage show in the style of old-time radio. Find out more at thrillingadventurehour.com. Let's introduce our panelists for tonight. It's a terrific group. Uh, We're lucky to have them. Our first panelist... Uh, after writing for such series as Charmed, Boomtown, and Jake 2.0, our first panelist uh, wrote for the first two seasons of Lost. He then moved to the show Medium for its third and fourth seasons, during which he also created the comic book series The Middleman for Viper Comics. Uh, in 2008, The Middleman was adapted to series for ABC Family, and our panelist served as the executive producer for that series. Uh, since then, he's developed all kinds of stuff for all kinds of networks. He recently developed a pilot for Sony, uh, and he's in the midst of several other exciting projects. Please welcome Javier Grillo Marxwatch. Uh, our next panelists have been writing partners for over 10 years. Uh, before breaking into scripted TV, they wrote everything from video games to reality series to a crazy Japanese game show, uh, which they will tell us about. Last year, they wrote for the Fox series The Good Guys, uh, and recently one of them, Aaron Ginsberg, produced the Burn Notice TV movie that premiered just last week. Uh, Aaron is also the director of the Thrilling Adventure Hour. Uh, please welcome Aaron Ginsberg and Wade McIntyre. Guys, welcome. Good evening. Wade, what do you sound like in a microphone? Thanks for not making us share a chair. <laughs> this is that, a lot of mic stand for, you know, really is. <laughs> it really is. Okay, just saying. We've been doing this two months, they won't get a smaller <laughs> mic stand. It's a charity show. All right, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, I didn't mean to notes your mic stand. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I can be big enough for this amount of equipment, you know? Oh, you, oh, you can. Okay. <laughs> Final panelist with Rob Schrab is the co-founder of the TV network slash website Channel 101. Woo! Yeah, that deserves applause. Uh, he's also the creator of the short-lived but very funny sketch show Acceptable TV, which ran on VH1. Uh, with Schrab, he wrote the screenplay for the film Monster House. Did you guys see that? Yeah. Oh, great, yeah. right? So good. Uh, he's the co-creator and was the head writer of the Sarah Silverman program, and in, 2000, in 2009 <laughs> brought us the brilliant, groundbreaking, and very funny Community, which is now ending its second season on NBC, Dan Harmon, everybody. Woo! Welcome, Dan. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. 
Uh, all right, we're going to jump right in. We have a lot to talk about. We don't have a lot of time. We have to be out of here in about 15 minutes. Um, I want to I start with Aaron and Wade. Makes yeah, sense. Yeah, right? Why <laughs> wouldn't you? Uh, Sorry, Dan. Journeyman in the industry. Uh, we actually talked last week, for those of you who are here, with Matt Nix about um, the kind of work that you guys did before getting on The Good Guys, because a lot of that got you the work on The Good Guys, which included a web series that you guys did, uh, as well as this other stuff. Uh, tell us about the work that you did before your, break, your breaking into the industry just last year with The Good Guys. Um, well, there was about uh, you know, a good six or seven years of, uh, of reality television, which we don't need to talk about. <laughs> um, it's written, by the way, everybody. For those people who still think it might be real, it is not real. Um, but then uh, a couple years ago, we... Um, how, what would you say our break would be? I'm still waiting. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Has that happened? Did it happen just now? It, it was not a story. This is it, you guys. It was, it's huge. This is You're huge. looking at it. Um, it was not an overnight. Our story is not one of overnight success. We've been writing together for for ten years. Um, as far as the you know the the break, like our first, what we wanted to do was scripted television, and that's only happened recently. Mm-hmm. But as far as the like, not the big break, but the break that's important was getting a job writing for for G four for a show called Ninja Warrior, um, writing host copy. Basically, and why this was the best job in the world. One, it's kind of a cool show, and it was better than some of the really humiliating uh, dating shows that we were doing for uh, MTV. Ninjas are cooler than than date my mom. Beefcake guys uh, on uh, <laughs> ninjas are cooler than douchebags. Yes, yeah. yes, that's a fact. <laughs> but the great thing about it, and it's, what I think the key was, was it was a, not only was it a job that involved writing that paid. Um, which is nice, but it also was a job we could get done by about one or two in the afternoon, and then between uh, yeah. two and you know seven we could write our own stuff. And for about you know for seven or eight years, that's what we did. You know, we wrote uh, just sort of spec after spec and uh, screenplay after screenplay. I think I looked at it. And, uh, each year we would write a spec of a TV show that was on the air, and then also a screenplay or a spec pilot. And so we just grinded it out. I mean, when I moved out here with my Fraser spec and my nice recommendation from my writing teacher, who was a working professional writer, uh, I thought, you know, this is going to be a snap. You know, and then, you know, 10 years later, you know. Dan, the same question. I think, you know, this is a savvy audience. They know you from Acceptable TV, even from probably yeah, from yeah, TV 101. Yeah, I heard the applause after you said the name <laughs> of the, 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 the easiest way for an audience to indicate recognition is to sit in complete silence when you uh, say something. You didn't see they were all nodding. nodding. (laughs) To a man. I I heard chin stroking. It was was reverential ecclesiastical (laughs) silence. The sound Um, of 200 chins stroked. But but where did you come from? I mean, you've obviously had uh, a number of building successes now, culminating thus far in community. But uh, what's your background and, and what was the breakthrough, do you think, for you when you could say... This is what I'm doing for a living. Uh, I was uh, born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, I thank you. Uh, m- bigger than the acceptable TV audience. Uh, people from Milwaukee. I guess that makes sense. Um, the the uh, I I uh, I mean I I've I've 
I made up my mind that I wanted to be a writer when I was a when I was a toddler. I think I just uh, my mom. I was obsessed with my mom's typewriter, and I I all, I loved all of the the gross guys on TV and in movies. I loved I loved Jack Klugman on The Odd Couple. I loved, everybody that 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 was grody. I, I I I always gravitated toward that archetype and sort of you know knew that that's 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 going to be me. Um, I'll have so much less work to do uh, improving myself if I just go to that, you know, just play to my corner. I'm already stinky and gross. So, uh, but 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 really, I just I don't know. It was just there was something about that, and I, I just loved. I never really was able to finish anything. I always thought I was going to be a novelist. Like I, I would be a little kid and I would type on my mom's typewriter, and and I would I would. I would try to write like sequels to movies that I liked. Like I remember writing Jaws three because I saw Jaws two on Select TV, and I was like, Jaws three. He was it, the water was safe, but then and I was like typing all this stuff, and then I just stop after a while. I was always really bad at describing stuff. I really wanted to get to the parts where people talked, uh, and I didn't know until like probably my mid early twenties in Milwaukee that there was. It was it was it was by accident that I realized that there's a form of writing where it's okay to be bad at describing things and better at people talking, called screenwriting, and it was be- <laughs> it, it was because uh, uh, Rob Schraub, who's uh, comes from the comic book world, uh, uh, in Milwaukee, he was my best friend. He was self-publishing his comic book called Scud the Disposable Assassin, and. Uh, it's good. Uh, yeah, you should applaud. This was the the, the, the tail end of the '90s, like expl- black and white comic book explosion boom, and kind of indie press thing. It was like just enough money to keep making issues. That's all he was able to make. But Oliver Stone's company uh, optioned the film rights for it, and so we thought that meant uh, this will be a snap. Uh, and uh, we loaded up the U-Haul and with Hustler magazines and mattresses, and <laughs> and we came out to here, and we, we, we came out to here, uh, and, and, and started a writing. Yeah. Uh, and now I got a cement pond. So, and, so, so you fi- so you filled it, you filled it with Hustler magazines, and you came out to here. Okay. Yeah. Uh, good, the, uh, good describing so far. <laughs> Is this an all ages panel? Okay. The rain uh, was um, uh, falling with um, uh, a sound as I said to Rob, this is fucking awesome, this job. Um, we, we, it, nothing panned out with the Oliver Stone thing, but um, every story that you'll ever hear about writers, like, how did you make it? Because there's no, it's always banana peels and stoplights, as I put it. It's just like a series of random events. And... Uh, uh, the only thing you can do is be persistent about. Well, well I'm sure we'll get to this topic, but uh, the the we just we wrote a spec script, uh, a feature script, and uh, it was called Big Ant Movie, and we just we were those obnoxious guys that just gave you their script everywhere we went, and we had ten in the backseat of our cars, and um, and one of the guys that we gave it to. Uh, gave it to one of a, a person who was familiar with us from working for Oliver Stone, who was then just becoming a new agent at UTA. So this is all blind luck. She read the script. She liked it. My phone number was on the front. She called, said, I'm your agent because I just got you a meeting with Robert Zemeckis' new company. I know this is making you guys want to puke on me. Uh, And we went went to meet with Zemeckis' development people, and we ended even though you just saw this movie, it was actually that long ago that... Uh, we sold them the pitch for uh, Monster House, and uh, it just took that long for them to do anything with it. But uh, that that was – I mean it was really – of course, there was a lot of f- 
failure in there, but it is like that's there's some weird. That was the break, I guess, was getting that that agent and and then that first meeting because then we nailed it. And did that natural did that naturally lead to television? Is that what you guys were looking at? The anyway? television thing was another accident because then uh, you know the heat that was on us because we were these new guys from Milwaukee in our early twenties who were you know everybody there's, there's just the flavor of the day thing. It, um, it's not a necessary component to a successful career, but it's it is a phenomenon that happens. It's like oh these kids are hot. And uh, Ben Stiller wanted to meet with us because we were hot. And Ben Stiller had just signed a deal with ABC, uh, a TV deal. That was just one of those deals like that was sort of like, yeah, we'll give you millions of dollars and you'll tell us a couple of ideas now and then. But he had never, t- he'd never told them any ideas. And so he was in our meeting while we were talking to him about features. He said, do you guys have any TV ideas? We said yes, because uh, uh, we have a horrible idea for a movie, and that's what TV is, right? It's like a bad movie. <laughs> and so we pitched him this horrible idea we had, and he said, you're right, that is horrible. Uh, like, like, it was such a hacky idea, uh, and, and he sold it to ABC. <laughs> and when we were trying to write it, and the lady that bought it, Jamie Tarsus, got fired. And so the person that replaced her said, now it's a blind deal. We said, what's a blind deal? They said, it means for the rest of your life you have to pitch ABC see shit until they like something. We already knew that they were never going to like anything that we wrote, so we wrote Heat, Vision, and Jack to make them fire us. Uh, and we wrote it over Halloween weekend of 1999, and, and, and they, they fired us. Uh, but then Stiller read the script and started freaking out. I remember him calling. That was, a, that was the second big break. I was like, we were already doing okay. We were feature writers, and this whole television thing was such an odd departure. Now I'll never go back to features because it's a TV's a writer's medium, and also I've burnt all my bridges and <laughs> called Spielberg a moron on the internet, and I wrote a rant about Katzenberg. I'm a fuck up. I can't. I'll never be able to write movies again. Um, so uh, we just, like like we. Uh, we just started we, 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 because he was excited and because he was in Something About Mary everyone wanted to make Heat Vision and Jack and we went with the highest bidder and we made it and then we got our hearts broken and for a month I wiped my ass with my t-shirts because I wouldn't go out to buy toilet paper because I was suicidally depressed and then we started Channel 101 uh, because no one would hire us and, uh, and, then, and, and then like eight years went by or something and then Sarah Silverman wanted to work with us because she saw a video where Rob fucked a lemon uh, <laughs> It's the classic story. On the, the internet. Classic story. That's how Buck Henry broke in. Also. Yes. That's a- <laughs> Woody Allen was just here yesterday telling the same yeah. story. He had fresher t-shirts. Uh, Javi, same question. Uh, fuck the lemon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fuck the lemon. Same answer as well. How many lemons? Same story, tangerine. Right. <laughs> what, I'm Puerto uh, Rican. It was a mango. What? <laughs> It's still an all-age issue. <laughs> sorry. Uh, oh, I'm still sorry. really. Sorry what was the process of breaking in for? Uh, okay, so uh, I'm seven years old. I'm growing up in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and I saw Star Wars, which in Spanish was called Star Wars, and uh, <laughs> and uh, I said I want to do that. And then uh, so my parents would not let me go to USC when I was 17 because my father took a business trip looked at the corner of 32nd and Vermont and went, fuck no, <laughs> he's too young. So I wound up coming out for grad school and uh, I graduated with a thesis script and my thesis script was called Utmost Severity because uh, I, I wanted to, to, to really tackle the, the social themes of, of the representation of reality and media in, in the way that Patty Chayefsky did in Network. And then I saw John Woo's The Killer um, <laughs> and I was like, ah! So, uh, so I wrote a, a very serious treatment of, of how, uh, when, the, when this film was covered, um, 
the, 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 instead of hijinks and Sue, the, the, the writer actually wrote, After Much Carnage, which I actually took as a good thing. And it starred a 55-year-old Puerto Rican man, and Raul Julia had just died. Um, and in, in 1993 dollars, this film would have cost approximately $300 million to produce. So, so nobody bought it. And, uh, and then the uh, USC Office of Minority Opportunity sent me this email. Not an email. This was 1993. It was uh, snail mail. Say, and I was making copies at Kinko's, and, uh, and, and they sent me an, a snail mail saying that NBC, uh, the National Biscuit Company, was recruiting for junior executives, and I thought, uh, that is awesome. So, uh, so, so I, I interviewed for the job, and I got the job after about four months, and 250, like, there were 250 applicants and like six job interviews, and I get the job, and it was the best job ever because back in ni- between 93 and 95 when I was, when I was in TV – uh, or when I, when I was a TV executive, it was like like all of a sudden TV got like good, you know, like like Homicide, and then ER came out that year. So I was part of the team that I wasn't really helped develop ER, but I was, you know, there. And um, <laughs> and and Friends came out that year, and like and, and the X Files. This one was doing TV, cinematic television, and and all of a sudden like TV was becoming this this writer's medium that we all call having a golden age now, in spite of my presence in it. And. Um, and it, so, so I was a current executive for two years, and, and I got to have lunch, which was great. Like, all the time, you go have lunch with people, like, and if they were agents, you could, like, they'd either buy you lunch, or if they were writers, you'd buy them lunch, and you never paid for lunch. It was, like, the best job ever. And I bought a laser disc with the money, and, and, uh, and, and the first disc I got was the Criterion edition of John Woo's The Killer. Yeah, so, so anyway. So uh, I went to Florida to shoot some uh, – I got bored very quickly, and I went to Florida to shoot some documentary material on the making of Sequest, which was a show on which I was a current executive, which I know changed all of your lives in television as we know it. <laughs> And, uh, and I was at the bar uh, having a drink with the executive producer who, who basically uh, – he would heap abuse on me because I was 24 years old at the time. And I was that guy that everybody wanted to go kill um, because who the hell was I? He had created 24, 21 Jump Street. you know. I mean, And I was giving him notes on his scripts. He, he hated me. And so, so he kind of grabbed me by the head and went, you look like your razor head, kid. Let's go have a drink. Thunk. You know? so, so I'm at the bar and he's like, you want another scotch? I'm like, yeah. He's like, you want a cigarette? I'm like, yes, sir, I would. And he sort of had a couple drinks, and we drank together, and he went like, you know, you're going to be running the network in a few years. And, and I said, well, actually, sir, I have a master's degree in screenwriting, and I wrote a $300 million screenplay for Raul Julia. And he goes, if we get a third season, I'll hire you, kid. And I'm like, really? And he goes, yeah. So I went, and I, I, I basically told everyone at NBC that it was a secret, but I had a job at Sequest, right? And so we, so within a week, you know, everyone at CAA knew. Uh, not that it mattered. I was like the most youngest guy in the totem pole. But uh, what wound up happening was, so, um, so Sequest... They finished their second season with an episode in which Sequest was transported to another planet, blown up, and it ended with, like, Jonathan Brandis and the dolphin on a raft in, like, another planet. So, like, they didn't think the show was coming back. So, like, I realized this offer was not really an offer, and everybody knew I'd quit NBC pretty much, you know. So, anyway, so... um, that's the a show lot that, like the Dances with Wolves scene where the guy that assigns him the post, like, that blows his brains out after... He, totally. Like, Farewell, yeah. my knight. So, and, and, and I'll wrap this up because I know it is boring as hell. But anyway, so, so what happened was... So, we have so, four hours here tonight. So, so, so NBC was developing a show to replace Sequest called Rolling Thunder. And it was a show about secret agents who fought, uh, who fought crime in monster trucks. Because that's what you do, right? So, so the audience tests the show. And, you know, like the audience testing, they give you a dial and you turn the dial up or down. You know, so like, anyway, so like the dial was like flatlined the entire time until they dropped the, the trucks out of one of those C-34 cargo planes, you know? And then all of a sudden the dials were like, you know, and, and John Landgraf would, was 
the development executives now at FX that like we should do a show called America's Favorite Shit Being Thrown Out of Airplanes. <laughs> Long story short, uh, Rolling Thunder doesn't get picked up. Sequest gets picked up for a third season, and I got hired as a writer to go figure out how to get them off the goddamn planet. <laughs> and that was the beginning of my TV writing career. That's all I have. <laughs> That's all I have. You answered every question I had. Uh, I wanted to step back a little bit. Um, Please. Because, again, uh, last week we talked with Matt Nix and David Schulner, who talked a little bit about how uh, the reason, or one of the reasons that Matt hired you guys on The Good Guys, uh, Aaron and Wade, is because Schulner had good-mouthed you. You know, he heard good things after... That sounds very dirty. <laughs> that was an all-ages panel, really. No, no. Yeah, That's right? how it happens in Hollywood, You're... folks. You got to get some good mouth. It, it... You got to give it... It takes 10 know. years, but... It's who good mouths you. Uh, but he had checked with Schulner and heard good things about you guys who had uh, been... Had you Were you writer's assistants? Is that what it was? Sort of. It was a weird... We were working on a show called The Oaks that was uh, never came out. That was... Uh, written by David Schulner and then show run by Sean Ryan. And they had sort of hired a room, like a fake room, to, because of the nature of the show, uh, break the first 13 episodes before. They had gotten a 13-episode pickup yes, immediately. Yes, a guarantee on air. I'm sure you guys all saw all 13 that made it to air. <laughs> and Aaron, Aaron was hired to be the writer's assistant and take all the notes, and I just showed up. That's true. <laughs> because David would let me. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't occupy it, and I just sat there to listen, but, you know, it doesn't take very long, especially when you're friends with the showrunner. Yeah. When they get stuck, when they're like, well, what do you got? Within, uh, within so, a week, we were not, not really writer's assistants or whatever we were. We were just, uh, we were just we're, in the room breaking these stories because they needed people to do it, and Fox wouldn't pay more people than they'd had in there. Well, we question. would not accept money. We didn't want to do it for money. Mm. We were writing television for the love <laughs> of writing television, right? Uh, well, my question actually is about that that moment uh, because you guys did know Schulner before, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's really, and this is something we've touched on on the last couple in the last couple weeks. And I know Bob Odenkirk really talked about it, and Brian Stack a few weeks ago uh, about the kind of network you create for yourself. And how that can be beneficial for you, you know, whether it's formally or informally. I mean, you, how did you know these guys? How did your network help you uh, in your entree to television writing? Well, it seems like you sort of have to be able to survive in this town and also have a really good script so that at some point one of your buddies, when, they're, when they start moving, like I remember just it felt like our whole group of friends all of a sudden, you know, our actor friends were getting parts and our director friends were directing shorts with real money and then all of a sudden people were getting staffed and it all kind of moved as a group uh for in our case a lot of it was college buddies that came out here and trying to do the same thing and you know some of them didn't make it and decided to move and or become a lawyer or whatever you know and then and the people that were able to hang around long enough while you're kind of waiting for this great happenstance moment to come along you know which it finally did for us now in order for that to happen like you, it is all who you know but in order to meet people you really have to have a good script so it wasn't entirely just because if your buddy's going to recommend you, like whoever they're recommending, unless your buddy is really powerful, uh, whoever they're pitching you to, they're going to be like, well, who the hell are these guys? Uh, so you want to have that material to kind of back That's it kind up. of our calling card. Really. Who the hell are these guys? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and are they cheap? Yes. All right. Well, okay. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know. I got a little lost there. Did I at all answer the question? Close enough. No, you said what I wanted to hear, certainly. And it reiterated, again, the things that uh, we've sort of been talking about these past couple of weeks. Uh, Dan, can you do you look at that in the same way? Have you Can you think of an opportunity in which uh, either you've been given an opportunity or you've gotten a job because either you came up with this group of people and you had the material to back it up? You know, how has a network played a part in your success? Well, there's, uh, I mean, I, the guy that bought community in the room, uh, Jeff Ingold, who was and is still currently working in comedy development at NBC, uh, I, I didn't recognize him, but when I sat down, he said, do you remember me? And I said, no. And he said, I worked at Greenblatt Janelari, which was the studio that did Heat Vision and Jack. And he was, I believe, literally like bringing coffee to the guy who ended up being the head of NBC now. It got Bob Greenblatt, but that's a different story. Like, like, But um, uh, he was... Uh, he must have been some kid that I didn't even, I wasn't even conscious of. I don't know. I mean, I remember sitting there and hearing that him going like, I worked at, I worked at, I worked at Greenblatt Janelari and I, 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 it, it, it took all this pressure off of me for the pitch. I always wanted to work at NBC. And so I was the most terrified to pitch at that network because you walked on this call and there's an A-team uh, picture and there's a Cosby picture and there's a Knight Rider picture and there's a, it, it, it's like, it's the only network I've ever wanted to have a sitcom on if I was ever going to try to do something mainstream. And, uh, and so I was nervous as hell and that really relaxed me and he bought it in the room. I didn't know that he did. It was explained to me later that that's what he meant when he said, let's do this. Um, <laughs> I didn't. I was just so jaded by that point. I was like trying to talk my agent out of it, going like, "No, that's not. He's he means let's develop this into the ground. That's what they usually mean." Uh, uh, but but I mean, so that was a relationship. Uh, I don't know if there's a correlation, a cause effect relationship. I have no idea. I'll never know. He he he'll never know. I mean, because uh, like, does he? Did he think I was talented because when he was making a latte for 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 his bosses, I was the exciting rock star in the room did that, that, that affect him in some way i don't know uh i i'm not a very deft politician i'm i'm i'm, I'm quite the opposite I, I i'm i'm sort of a mansonian or uh bin ladian uh kind of uh uh figure in that i have my loyalists beneath me but the you know so you're gonna carve a swastika into your forehead before the panel but we talked him out of it so yeah that's, I, that's, that's too mainstream i decided I, uh, uh, the 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 uh, so I, I don't yeah I, I've never I've never really been able to craft a network like that. Um, I, what I what I do try to do is I personally like young people who scare the shit out of me because they're so talented. I bend over backwards to help them because I always feel like I'm gonna be down and out in Beverly Hills one day and kind of like walking down the street and eating dog food. Hey, and that's Dan Harmon. Know, yeah, some kid that I gave a job to that I that I nurtured and taught and like like took under my wing and defended is going to go, hey, old man, come come be a consultant or something. Um, I, I really do feel that way. I've always been obsessed with like mentoring, you know, and it's something, it's something to do with like, yeah, I just, it's a, it's a, I think it's a Wisconsin thing. It's a karmic thing. It's like you feel like you have to um, uh, help like uh, people underneath you, or they'll eat you uh, alive, um, and then you you'll have no one to blame but yourself because you were so cocky. Um, but but I so I don't know. I guess I'm the wrong guy to ask. I, all I do is bite the hand that feeds me and burn every bridge, and I just get lucky because like the guy that I pissed off, well his assistant liked me, so and then that guy died, so. Uh, <laughs> 
I just I just stumble. I just weird the chain of coincidence there. Huh? <laughs> One thing. <laughs> <laughs> he, it was a weird the circumstances of his death. He was uh, he was actually teleported to a planet with a dolphin. Uh, <laughs> And, and there was no oxygen, and the dolphin was actually providing him with food verbally, but he couldn't understand him, like telling him where he's saying there's shellfish down here. You, I think what he just said about about mentorship is probably uh, you know the, the most canny thing that, that that you'll hear tonight. I think that um, you know I, I actually judge uh, the quality of a showrunner not by necessarily the the number of hit shows that they have, but by the number of showrunners that they've put into the world. Um, if you look at Star Trek Next Generation, one of my favorite shows, and you look at the number of people that, that Michael Piller actually discovered, uh, people who came to that show who are now showrunners, guys like Ron Moore, uh, Narain Shankar, Rene Chavaria, Brandon Braga, who literally were guys who, who tried to sell spec scripts to Star Trek, who wound up being groomed completely into their high-level producerdom through that show. And that's really something that speaks very highly of, of Michael Piller as a producer. And I think that you know, when I think of the possibility that I'll, that I'll run a show again, uh, it's highly unlikely. It's the first thing I think of. But the second one is uh, <laughs> that 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 my hope is that you know I, I I remain not only friends with the people who 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 were in the staff of the show that I that I ran, but that they can actually take something out of that experience that carries them through into the world in terms of being kinder, better people, and better showrunners for wanting to mentor themselves. Because the worst showrunners that I've worked for are the ones who who have said things like. You know, uh, you know, I, I didn't get the crap beat out of me for four years on Magnum PI so that I could be nice to you. You know, uh, and you go, okay. You know, um, you know the other, the other thing, which which you know, in terms of the network and all that, is like you know, you obviously have. I, I think you know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have had the job on Lost if um, I hadn't met Jesse Alexander through through mutual friends. And for a while, there were a couple of us who would go out to dinner and sort of you know bitch about our jobs to each other and stuff like that. And and. The, the, those networks are, and he's the person who brought me into loss, and that's kind of how you look at the success of the second half of my career, which frankly was lucky to survive the first half of my career. Um, but the other thing is, you have to take the black belt approach to to um, to just going through your life, and, and that doesn't mean act like a black belt. That means act as if anybody might have a black belt, you know, which is like, like basically if, if, if you go around fucking with people, you know, you don't know who's going to have a black belt and it may not be the big tough guy. It might be the little tiny, you know, old lady who goes, you know, and then you're like on the floor, you can't breathe. It's like that scene from Rising Sun, right? So just go around, go, go through the world as if everyone you meet has a black belt and it's in your best interest to not be a dick to them. And, and then you're most likely to have that assistant, like, you'll say like, oh my God, you were so nice to me. Come here, old man. Uh, you can be a consultant on this, you know, because I'm now president of the world. You know, I think that's what, like, like one of the most fundamental things that gets in the way when a writer is having trouble stepping into the role of politician and leader. Like when you, because of TV, you become a producer, you become a boss of other writers. It's very, it was very difficult for me personally to make that transition because of that black belt principle. Because who am I to say if your joke isn't funny or not? I can say it didn't make me laugh. And yeah, it's my show, so that should be the currency. I had to really get used to that. It felt really profane to tell anybody this isn't a story, this isn't a joke, um, because I don't know. You could be a genius. Like I don't. If I'm talking to the next Mark Twain, and I, they, like they, then they're gonna write. That'll be my only legacy. They'll write a book like 20 years from now. And I'll go like, yeah, the, you'll, you'll my be first job you'll, was you'll for old their, man Harmon, and he was a you'll, dumb you'll dick. be their Mrs. Tingle, like yeah. uh, like uh, the Kevin Williamson English teacher who told them he'd never make it. Yeah, exactly. he wrote a movie about. I her. never want to be that guy. I, I so I, I and I. I think I have a pretty good nose for for hackery versus talent, but I also I really err on the side of that. Like 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 maybe 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 I'm just like 
dead inside. Maybe that's hilarious. Yeah, you, uh, you know the, the the thing I found out about uh, about show running though, and and it's certainly how I ran you know the middleman for all of twelve episodes, and you know maybe I'm wrong. Um, uh, you know, it, 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 take anything I say with a grain of salt because my track record speaks for itself. Uh, <laughs> but um. But, you know, the, the, the thing that I realized was that as a showrunner, I mean, you can't abdicate your responsibility to make a decision that is based on your aesthetic because it is your show at the end of the day. But, but one of the, the types of showrunners that I least liked in my career is, is the person whose, whose entire philosophy is everyone must follow me and then the information will sort of dribble from me accidentally and that's how you will know what to do. What I realized was that, you know, being a showrunner means that you're, you're essentially in a humbled service position where the realization that the job is all about you and the aesthetic of the show is all about you actually puts on you the responsibility to communicate to everybody mm-hmm. cogently what it is that you want. And if you do that, you'll find that people give it to you and then some. But yes. most of the, of the showrunners that I've worked with who are, are not particularly good at the job are, are not people who want to run a show. They're people who want to have a show. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a big difference because if what you want to do is run a show, then it becomes about you humbling yourself and saying, I must explain everything to everybody so that they can do it. Yeah, and you can see on screen, if you watch my show, you can see the difference between first season and second season. It has everything to do with second season. I'm starting to learn how to delegate to writers. I'm starting to nut up and go, I'm your boss. This isn't funny. Try to beat it. And and it's like, you know, dogs have that weird, slippery DNA. TV writers, really good ones, the ones that shoot straight up to the top, the, the, the trait, the survival trait that's being selected by that environment is adaptability, versatility, and uh, uh, I don't want to say lack of ego because they need that sense of self. They need to be a sort of genius, but they, they everything has to roll off their back. The stakes have to be low for them when you say to them, this is not my preference. And uh, and, and those people, are, it's like a million dollars worth of these people there to help you. And here I was first season being Howard Hughes about it and going, uh, I'll, I'll, thanks, uh, good job. <laughs> And then I would go home and I would cry in my pajamas and rewrite the thing and, you know, chew Adderall like candy and just like finish this two-day two rewrite, bring it in, and then you'd shoot it. And I did every episode like that. And then second season, what you see happening is I'm, I'm <laughs> their hours didn't get I, – I invited them all into that world. And, 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 and so oh, I never went home in my pajamas, but we all cried and stayed up for 14 hours at a time at work, and everyone is quitting. Um, but uh, – it's a, it was a it was a it was a better season because it's not just it, 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 it's very important that 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 it, it, there, I hear writers when they come in and they t- for interviews and they talk about their other experiences with other showrunners. I try to like hear what you know what okay how am I approaching this how am I doing this wrong and one cautionary tale I heard which I'll I won't dare to name because it's not my right to, to smirch this guy but there's a there's a guy with a show that one of the writers was working on and they were talking about. Like he's so smart and he's so precious and he does it. He wants to be so nice. So he never tells us what he's thinking, which is exactly what you just said. He never, he takes our stuff and he politely says, Oh, good job. And then we find out a week later that he hated it by virtue of him having to work really hard and all this stuff. Yeah, so, there's a nice and a nasty version of that. They're both equally bad. I mean, because they, they, they lead to a lack of communication. Yeah. But I think what, one of the things you said that's, that's, amazingly interesting and bears repeating both for in show running and in, and in TV writing as a whole is that adaptability is the biggest thing. And it's like your philosophy when you go into a TV writer's room should be crunch all you want, I'll make more. There is no single idea that you have that is so precious and so great and whatever. Like I used to tell people there's no such thing as, as the single. People say, I have, the, I have a spec that will sell for a million dollars. I'm like, write six more, then come say hello. You know, because it's, it's, like, it's like you're in a room – 
every every idea that you have is not going to be the one. They're all going to get shot down, and, and and hopefully nicely by a showrunner who wants you to succeed. But what you just said, it's 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 your it's your show. You need to be able to del- to, to to dictate what the aesthetic is and let people find it. You know. Yeah. When we were working uh, with with Matt Nix on on the Good Guys, we would bring in. We ended up writing four of the first season, uh, or the only season, twenty episodes. We wrote four of them, and every episode that we got ended up with us pitching an idea that was hours and hours of work to, to break. We'd bring in fully, not fully broken, but like relatively broken episodes. And Matt would, for one reason or another, we, we'd be sent back. And we would do that for each episode probably four or five times before the, the episode that actually aired is the one that, that, you know, that he was like, oh, that's the one. That's the one that I think we need to work on. Just because you're running into the brick wall, you still have to build up that good head of steam, yes. you know, and yeah. really throw yourself right in that brick yeah. wall until finally it kind of breaks... Yeah. breaks through it. it took, I, my philosophy was always like writing it and doing it the way we want to do it, just precisely our way. You know, we did that for years and didn't get paid. Like, kind of, they pay you to take the idea that you think is great and take that out and put in the idea that somebody else thinks is great. Sometime, you know, that's kind of that's why the the bucks are good. I mean, you know, you're there to learn how to write. I mean, if if you look at the you know the 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 scripts on Lost, it's it's actually really interesting because. Um, Damon Lindelof, who is a, a, a fantastic writer, um, you know, he writes in a very conversational sort of Shane Blackish style, you know. And again, I know this is an all ages panel, so forgive me, but I cannot do justice to his writing style without uh, profanity. Uh, but you know, he literally, you know, he will write a scene where it's like, you know, Jack fucking picks up the fucking spear and you fucking love him for it. Fuck, <laughs> you know? right? So, and, and by the way, and his scripts are the most fun reads you'll ever have. They're amazing to read because you just, it's like, it's like your best friend is telling you a story, but your best friend is one of the greatest tellspinners in the world. So, you know, but if you look at the, the, the scripts from, from the, set, for the first script that was not written by, by him on Lost through like episode 13, you can see the, the writer slowly adopting the philosophy. And, 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 you know, like literally, one writer from the show came in to me and said, I just wrote the greatest act break ever. And I'm like, what did you do? And he goes, well, look, look. and I read it and it goes like, Jack and Kate are stuck in the net. Then and the next paragraph was "fuck city population two. and I'm like, you got it. And that's, but that's our job. Our job is to come in and get in the mind of a guy like Damon and write the scripts the way that he'll recognize him as his own voice, you know. And that's the, and that's that's why the bucks yeah. are good. You're not there yeah. to write you. You're there to write your boss. And if the boss tells you how to do it, even better, you know. At the same time, though, you, I don't think you want to go in there and be the shrinking violet. Like you have to kind of go in there and act like you belong and act like you know what good is. And, you know, it was not very often, but every once in a while where we sort of said to the showrunner, we're like, you know, we really think this works and he's going to scratch it right out. We're like, no, that's, that joke is gold. You cannot take that out. He's like, all right, well, if it doesn't work, it's your ass. Yeah. And a couple of weeks later on the notes call, the network is like, oh my God, we love this joke. And he's like, thanks. (laughs) You know, (laughs) but he remembered, you know, and then he comes up to to us and it's like, yeah, you guys were right. Nice one. And that's the kind of stuff that's going to get you hired again if you're, you're making him look good. And, and you know he yeah, a lot of times would even give us credit, which I think is almost like a bonus. Well, that's actually I actually you know one of my my core philosophies is that credit is a self renewing, self sustaining, self regenerating thing, and it's like whenever a writer uh, in your staff comes up with something great and the network calls it out or whatever, like it's in your benefit as a showrunner to say, yeah, that's such and such as work because frankly, you look like a genius for, for doing, for hiring them. They look like geniuses for writing. Everybody looks good. So, you know, it's yeah. like I, I find some of the excessive possessiveness that takes place in, in writing specifically, like one of the things that prepares you for being an effective showrunner is getting rid of some of that possessiveness so that you can actually let other people have their moment in the sun. Uh, let's talk about 
before we go any further about actually getting into that room, because uh, I think we can get a couple of different perspectives here. Um, we're just getting into staffing season now. Um, I feel like Aaron and Wade, you guys can kind of break it down for everyone. The process that you are going through as you're taking these meetings and reading everybody, reading all the scripts that are sent to you by your agent and everything. Uh, so that, that can kind of give us a baseline of that side of it. And then we can talk to these guys about sort of the other side of it, the hiring of the staff. Well, we're reading a lot of pilots, everything that is picked up. We're reading it all uh, and then having a bunch of meetings. And, and obviously, like, we have a little bit of notice before those meetings. And then you go in and you have to talk coherently about, you know, two or three pilots that, uh, that you had just, you know, out of, out of dozens and dozens. We were at a meeting last week where, where we went in and, and uh, a few minutes in and we were, I said, oh, I, you know, I really loved uh, this one pilot. And the, uh, the executive goes, oh, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that is not ours. That is not, <laughs> we are not doing that. Uh, I go, oh, I, I thought that, uh, she goes, oh, yeah, it must be written somewhere uh, that that's ours, but it's not. Because this has happened before. People have come in here and, and mentioned it. I said, well, it's really, it's really good. You should check it out. <laughs> you, probably, you probably should have bought that one because it is, it is fantastic. <laughs> as far as I can tell, like, to get the staff job, like, you need to have the, the showrunner that wants you and then also to be, be on sort of the network approved list from the, the studio people and the, the network people. And uh, at this point in the process, like, we're, because we're kind of new, like, we're going or making what a friend of mine calls the Crystal Geyser tour because you go in and they all offer you water. But just meeting all the sort of network people around so that you can get on the list ahead of time. I never take later. the water. I never take you the water. You should always take the water. <laughs> never. I refuse. Um, so we're you know, you're sort of part of it is just meeting the people and schmoozing. Uh, and by the way, if you're not good at schmoozing, I highly recommend getting a writing partner who is. Uh, that was my solution to the, to the problem of just uh, a, a big part of those it. meetings is that you show up at the studio and they just want to make sure you don't have like a goiter or like that you aren't like you know some of your limbs haven't been replaced with hooks like like, like a pirate or something. You're like the whole idea is that they just want to make sure that if they like your writing that you're presentable. So when they send you to the executive producer, you know you show up right. and you know you don't have explosive halitosis or something like that. You know, so that's a big part of it. So really, it's it's sort of like a date. You just go there, you're engaging. You're charming. You're smart. You're funny, and you just show them if if these people send us an executive producer, we'll we'll make these people look good. You know, and there's a little bit of sex, a little bit of sex. <laughs> good mouthing is what we call it. It's the industry term. You guys read Deadline Hollywood, you'll get it. Uh, Dan, you're you're probably filling in some staff. What do you look for uh, besides good writing? You know, I I I, I read two pages of, of of someone's script, and and by the second page, I know if they're capable of like sort of fundamentals to comedy writing, which is like sort of not to be crass, but set up punchline, like, you know, whether it's one liner or set up punchline and a couplet, like, are you able to get down to that business and make me understand? Or do I have to get to page two, realize I'm reading a callback and then flip back and reread page one. Then you're, you're kind of sunk. So um, uh, people whose scripts I can get all the way through, the, uh, you know, we, we call them in for, for a meeting. And uh, sometimes you're looking for specific things. At the network level, it's, it's, it gets a little political because the, there's so much money being invested into these productions. They're, they're much more comfortable with a hierarchical environment because what that means is that if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, there's two guys underneath me that might be able to step up and four guys underneath them, et cetera. It's fascism. Uh, and it, and it, 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 it's, it, it, they also, in between seasons, by the way, summon all these people into the room, like cops solving a homicide, and tell all of them that everyone else talks shit about them, get all the dirt, and then lower everyone's pay if they can. Um, so 
so be on the lookout for that. Uh, but that, 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 that same mentality like, like, like means that in network, like sometimes you're looking for a sheepdog, somebody that, the, that, that can run a room. Sometimes you're looking for a joke writer, blah, blah, blah. In, in the most general sense, if you're a new writer, then that means you're going to be a staff writer coming in if you're, if you're lucky. And, uh, and that means that in your script, what I want to see is clarity. Um, I don't, I don't need to see genius. I just need to see a sensibility that matches mine. I can see that your intent was to do this joke and you executed it. Uh, and, uh, and I can't think in my head, like how to beat it immediately. Like, 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 well, cause I guess if you, if you, if you, if you wrote it down and you couldn't figure out how to beat it. Like, like in a way, it, it doesn't matter if I sat there and like worked it like a Rubik's cube. If I could beat you in a comedy contest, I'm not talking about that. I just mean like you're doing this jug, like oh you, yeah, but you if you put the comma there, it would have been hilarious, and you didn't know that. So, so fuck you. Uh, uh, sorry, kids. Uh, the, no, but and and then in the room, I'll tell you what I'm looking for. I mean, the politicians are looking for lack of halitosis, and I'm looking for. Like you prefer uh, it ability. Well, <laughs> ability to own it if you have it. Like, I, 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 I'm looking for because I'm, because there's two components to it. It's like your skill on paper, and then you're going to be stuck in a room for 12 hours a day with others of your ilk. And uh, and I'm I'm sort of imagining in my head a jigsaw puzzle and going like, okay, Megan's going to hate her. Uh, oh wait, uh, Todd's going to love him. Uh, the, but you know this guy's going to drive everyone nuts. But that's okay uh, because he's really funny and the get used to him yeah yeah yeah. sort of thinking that the whole time while i'm talking to the people in the room um and that i mean so it doesn't you can you can i don't care if you make eye contact stare at the corner of the coffee table the whole time i i I, obviously all i'm gonna think is kindred spirit you know if you're if your social skills aren't all the way there uh uh i i i just i just like i just like you know i like to feel like you're able to talk and the stuff in your head is able to come out of your mouth. Um, I, I, I get suspicious of the really nicely dressed types, but I don't hold it against them because there's lots of those guys on my staff. Like, because if they're, you know, I've some some people like to look nice and smell nice. I'm not going to punish them, but <laughs> but I do find myself thinking, like, how good of a writer can you or, be? Like, if yeah, yeah, if you're too good looking, like you yeah, know, I mean, anyone what? five inches taller than me with a good tan, full head of hair, nice teeth, you're fucked. You're yeah. not going to get a job on my show. I mean, you know, I'm like, when when, who did you pay to write this? You've been out there working out. It's the flyer I'll take is if, if you look really nice, you've got great teeth and great hair and you clean nice clothes and stuff, I'll, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt and assume you're a raving psychopath. <laughs> uh, and, and I'll go, okay, maybe that's fine. Yeah, the, really, the really kind of thing that he hit on is that is that you know putting together a room isn't shopping, it's casting. And a lot of first-time showrunners make the mistake of shopping. They go like, oh, that person wrote on this show and that person wrote on that show. And that, but let's put them all together. They'll work great together. And you get in and you've got like three people who patently hate each other. And I think a big part of, of the job, and, and that's why sometimes when you don't get a job, you can't take it personally. It, it may mean that they have someone in the room who's already exactly like you. you know, and then you just look up who, who that is and kill them. Um, but, but it just means that you know, like a lot of the time it's that alchemy of can you get five people in a room who are going to spend 12 hours a day in competitive group therapy and not kill each other? You know, and if you can manage to get that group of people, that's you – know, the, the, the other thing about – that, that I was thinking about in, in terms of like you know the, the people sending you the, the the scripts and all that is you know I'm going to tell a story about about a writer 
um, her agent sent me, uh, called me when I was working on Lost in 2004. And, uh, and she's sitting in this audience. I won't embarrass her by saying her name. But uh, it's Sarah Watson. Uh, and uh, <laughs> she's right there. And, you know, her agent called me when I was working on Lost and said, I've, I've got this amazing writer, and, uh, and, and she loves science fiction, but she's also a great character writer. And I'm like, well, what are her samples? And he said something like, well, she wrote Volcano in New York for the Sci-Fi Channel. And, and she has a Gilmore Girls spec. And I'm like... Gilmore Girls is my favorite show. Oh, my God. Send me the Gilmore Girls spec. And it was so good that I actually read it out loud to my then-wife. Uh, and, and I said, well, I, I don't know if I can help, help her get a job on Lost, but I'd like to meet her. So we met. We had lunch. And, um, and I remember saying, saying to Sarah over that lunch, I said, I've got this comic book called The Middleman that I'm going to put out, and it's designed to be a TV show. And as God is my witness, when this thing gets on TV, you'll be the first person I hire. Flash forward to 20, three years later. Um, middleman got picked up, and that the first call that I made was to that agent, um, and and we managed to get. I, I had liked that Gilmore Girl spec so much that we actually made a second position deal because she was on another show um, to get her to make sure that we could get her on the show, and we were willing to give her up. Just you know, so it's one of those things where a lot of the times in that first meeting in that first encounter, maybe you don't get the job, but two and a half years later, that person might come knocking down your door because they remember what you did. So. You know, not getting the job doesn't necessarily mean you yeah. were you were a bad person. It just means you maybe weren't the right fit for something. That's you know? incredibly important advice. That that, would be, that works for actors, carpenters, anything. If it, like, do not try to fit someone else's lock. Just 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 be yourself and wait for the person that's looking for you. Um, and that that that's 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 absolutely crucial because um, I hear people, I talk to young writers who are taking like programs at colleges and stuff and I said, what, what did they, t- they, well, they told us how to behave in a meeting today. I was like, what do you mean? How do you behave? He's like, well, never go like this and never go like this and always go like this and all this weird physical shit. I'm like, what, how is that going to impress me that, that you are clear? I'm going to be thinking, what's wrong with this guy? He looks... He looks constipated. He looks like he wants to go like this and can't. Uh, uh, why, why can't he? Uh, 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 so I mean, and 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 yeah, I mean, it's just across the board, like in every respect. Forget forget meeting for a writer's job, anything. Just like that, that that has to do with your relationship with your audience that you'll find one day. Your voice, your your you know, who who are you? Because your job is to push a piece of paper up against your brain. And have it be an accurate, like, that's it. Because what else are you supposed to do as a writer but the only thing you can do as a writer, which is go, this is what I am. Um, it, it, it seems silly when we're talking about, like, uh, being a staff writer on Nash Bridges, but it, do, it does, like, still, it's a fundamentally creative position. You're conjuring things, and it's about your your voice and your your style and stuff. And find it as soon as you can and and own it and, and be happy with it because you, if you never get lucky... Uh, and then you die, at least you'll have spent your entire life doing what you thought was cool. Um, and and, and get, more than likely, because talent does out, someone will eventually, they'll go, where's that Gilmore Girls person? I want them to write my dolphin thing, whatever it was. <laughs> the middleman. Still, I'm still Which, by the way, published in black and white because of Scud. <laughs> one of my favorite, actually, one of my favorite books ever. And because color is more expensive. Well, no, actually, they, they offered me color. I oh, really? <laughs> I said zip, zip a tone and, and broad lines, yeah. Nice. 
Zipatone is a pain in the patootie. I didn't. I didn't zipatone it. Not my problem. I just wrote the shit. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have the, the zipatone will never be a pain in anyone's patootie anymore because they have like this antique yeah, tablets and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But Rob zipatone is those dots, like the Roy Lichtenstein dots, but in black and white. Yeah. They have. They make stickers of these dots in different densities, and you, they would t- t- take them and adhere them to the page, and then take an exacto blade and cut around the drawings. So I was like, oi, vey. Yeah. But we digress. <laughs> do you do not have 20 more minutes on Zipatone? <laughs> do we ever? Thank God. I've been waiting for this moment for so Wait long. Wait for the Zipatone panel. <laughs> I think you can get it over the counter now. But apropos of what he said about you know, being yourself, he's like, I have been fired from shows for being too me. And, and then, I find that hard to believe. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. And, and uh, <laughs> I want to fire me for being too me most of the time. But anyway... Um, but, there, but then, you know, sometimes a network will say, you know, we, we want to do this show. And I remember when I sold The Middleman to ABC Family, I was like, guys, you realize that this show has a, has a monkey with a, with a machine gun in it. And they'd be like, we know. And I'm like, it's not a metaphorical monkey. It's an actual monkey who thinks he's a gangster and he's got a machine gun. And they're like, we know. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know? And then 12 episodes later, we've done Zombie Fish and Lucha Libre and all that stuff. And, you know, that they kept it on the air because they like that vision. So you, you can only be what you are. Unless that contradict with some of the other stuff we're talking talking about when you hear us talking about how your job in a staff is to bang your head against that <laughs> exactly. wall with full zealousness uh, uh, that's what that's now you've got the job and now that's they hired you because they wanted you so your behavior in those trenches that's what a good soldier does you fight that war for your superior officer um, but in terms of, of of like getting on that army, like like get 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 on the one that's looking for your type of soldier, yeah. and you'll have less headbanging to do probably. Especially now that the sort of calling card script is um, instead of probably a Gilmore Girls, now it's your Gilmore Girls. It's, <clears throat> excuse me, whatever you know, original it's the original stack. pilot. Yeah. So that's kind of great. Now even more than ever, it's like go be you and write something that'll jump out of the stack. Oh, can, can, I, can I just say something in apropos of that? Like, yeah, agents want everybody to write spec pilots, and that's great, and that's wonderful because you get to show off your individual vision and all of that. It's great. But please, for God's sake, get on a staff, be on a staff, learn how to produce, learn how to be a human being on a TV show, learn what it's like to be abused by a showrunner before you become a showrunner because if not, then you will become a showrunner and you will think, I was born to be a showrunner and now I have my show and then you will become the abuser and it will be the worst thing that will ever happen. So please, for God's sake, use that spec pilot to get a job on a staff and learn how the thing works rather than not because it's just a disaster otherwise, really. Please. Case in point. I know I, I never came ask. up to other people's staffs, and I'm I am I am a horrible showrunner. Like I, <laughs> it's really like difficult for me. And I and, and it, that, that was it, I meant as, as an indictment of you. I'm just saying. Like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm be I'm, in the trench if you can. I'm actually, not being you know. glib. I'm saying for real. Like it costs Sony money. My inexperience <laughs> at. <laughs> Like like, like 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 people go home at three in the morning and and could if one of them hits a tree will get sued and and you know like like it's bad that I didn't come up through the trenches like I, I you know but 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 because of all of the creative work that you've done before and because you have like all of these years of creative work doing all of this other stuff the, the thing that you have to realize and and it's one of the, the the biggest things about running a show or being in a creative environment whether you're managing creative people or being managed as a creative person is that you are in the middle of a process of a process you know. And and there were times on shows when like you know th- th- like I-, I once talked to a showrunner who who s- I said how's the show going and he goes well I got the first round of scripts and it's good because I don't have to fire anybody and I'm like 
why would you fire anybody in the first round of scripts? How about you try teaching them how to write your show instead of just assuming that that first round of scripts is is some sort of a thing to figure out who you're gonna who you're gonna, who you're gonna whose life you're gonna ruin, you know? And 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 that's and that's the thing that I think having a, a long time of of extended creative work in your quiver gives you is an appreciation for. That first round of scripts is probably not going to be very good, and it's like you know you're going to have to tell people what it is that you need to do and have to teach them how to do the show. And there are some people who will have on the sec on the second round if like they don't step up to it, then you're, you're going to have to have a difficult conversation. But it's a teaching and it's a process, and that's the most important thing. Since we you know, although we sold the pilot, didn't go anywhere, so we've never been a showrunner. But I will say that everybody that well, maybe not everybody, but at least for us, like we're sort of secret showrunners in our own mind of our future. You know, like we're already now planning. So like your buddy who you know and you think is great, like that guy, I'm going to put him on my staff when I get my own show. And when I'm watching my showrunner and saying, I'm going to do it that way. I'm not going to do it that way. And, you know, so even now, like, though you might not even know it, you could be being placed on somebody's imaginary future show that will hopefully someday be a real show. All of which is a way to say you can rise through assassination, but you won't last nearly as long as you will last if you're a good person and a kind person. <laughs> uh, I want to talk, and this will be my last question because I want to make sure you guys have plenty of time, but uh, I want to talk about developing and pitching your own material because all of you guys have done this. And Javi, I'd like to start with you and talk specifically about the middleman if, if you'd like to or if there's something... A better story, by all means. You know, you know, the, the Middleman is, is, is sort of a weird case because my agent hated it um, when I wrote it in 1998, and I put it in the hard drive, and and he just he, he used to talk about it the way that I would imagine Barry Levinson's agent talked about the movie Toys. You know, it was like, oh Barry, <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> you know, I think I think they I think they would have rather he'd made Sphere before he made Toys. You know, but anyway. Um, so, so, so I made a comic book out of it because I couldn't find a venue for it, and because monkeys in comic books are cheap, uh, and in real life monkeys are—I'm just like totally not getting the guess. In real life, monkeys are, are very expensive, and there's only, by the way, two viable monkey suits in Los Angeles that are photorealistic at any given time. One of them is owned by Jim Henson. The other one is from the guy who did the movie Ed, which was Matt LeBlanc. So if you ever want to put a monkey or a gorilla in your show, just know you got to go pay those guys 80 grand or you can't have a monkey in your show. So just so you know, pro tip. Okay, anyway. <laughs> so um, so anyway, um, so, so I did the comic book specifically as not just a proof of concept but also proof to myself that this thing had value because I had been so beaten up over it. And then the comic book led to it being a TV show. The, the, the thing that matters most about pitching anything is sit in front of a mirror and pitch this show a billion times before you pitch it to anybody. And make sure that, that you know this universe and this – okay, so a pitch, you probably don't you know, give the entire story in the pitch. Know the entire story. There can be no question asked of you uh, because you're selling two things. One of them is your brilliant concept and you are all probably brilliant and have brilliant concepts. But the other thing you're selling is I have such mastery over this concept that nobody but myself can do it. And the thing about a pitch is that a pitch is not a proof of concept. You have to sell that you're the guy who's going to – or gal who's going to write this script and knock it out of the park. And your presentation of yourself in that pitch – is, is crucial for that. Um, so if you're not the master of that universe, like if somebody goes, okay, so this guy has a, has a, has a chainsaw for a hand. Yeah. What happens when he runs out of gas and you go, ooh, um, well, you know, I'll figure that out. Then they're like, yeah, you know, like you need to know the answers to everything. And if you, if you are the master of that universe, you're more likely to be the master of the show. That is the single most important thing about developing and selling a pitch. For me. Dismissed. <laughs> I'll buy it. What was it? <laughs> Uh, Aaron and Wade, what's been your experience? Um, well, we, we uh, sold the pitch to Spike, uh, I guess it was a year and a half ago, and we worked with a, uh, uh, a comedian. It was his sort of concept, and we and, and he was super funny and, and didn't uh, sort of understand or, or have a much of a 
uh, no interest pitching in no, pitching or really writing a script like he, like sort of structure and all that stuff it'll happen right is in his mind so we we worked and we had to sort of pound it into his head like we need to really have this pitch down and I remember we would have meetings where we were working on it like you know like you're gonna say this part and then we're gonna say this part. And then if they ask, we'll know all this shit here. But otherwise, like, we had it down. And I remember we would time it, make sure it was, uh, you know, in a good amount of time. So we could be in there in 15 minutes. And then we could talk about it for 45 if they liked it. And he was like, why are we doing all this? It's, like, funny. Like, we'll just go in there and it'll be funny. It's like, just let's trust us. We'll just do it this way. And I remember we, we, uh, we went into a meeting. We, we pitched it around town. We finally went into one meeting. We had that feeling. It wasn't bought in the room like yours, Dan. But, like, we well, had that feeling like, oh, this is going... Well, they like it. They like us. It's a good pitch. And I, uh, my memory, at least, of is we went uh, a few days after that. We got noticed that we that they had bought it. Spike had bought the pitch. I, you skipped the fun part, which is at the end of the meeting. Oh, um, yes, I did. At the end of the part. meeting, you know, it's kind of customary. The, the executive we were pitching to was like, "Oh, that was really great. You know, you know, yeah. we're going to take this up, you know, to our boss. A couple of days, we will get back <laughs> yeah. to you." And Brendan, the comedian, was like, "No, you have to tell us right now." Yeah. yeah. And. I did forget that. He was just joking. Yeah, but the kidding. look of like... terror on all of their faces, we were like, shit, we really sold this. Like, they're yeah. like, fuck, we have to decide right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can't let them leave this room. And then everybody kind of, we laughed to yeah. like break the tension, which was dumb. If we hadn't laughed, they probably would have bought it right then. Yeah, that's true. But and then that was the one where we sold it. We pitched it a bunch of times. Actually, if I could tell a quick story about doing this wrong. Well, hold on, before you oh. guys, let me, let me just jump in real quick. This one, Sorry. Is this it? is the end of it right now. You're seeing the breakup of a 12-year partnership. I just want to say that two days after we officially sold it, the comedian went to Arizona and spent all the money that he thought we had just, and bought a breathalyzer. So he could play this game to try to like break it by drinking, and then we didn't get paid for six more months. And he and he was like, "What?" That's one I, way to do it wrong, I guess, is to spend the money. Uh, wait, I thought we were gonna get when they bought it. I thought we would money. get money like on Monday. Like, our, no, our no. first if you don't our first pitch meeting was um, when we were first starting out in this town. Like I was working as a tour guide at Warner Brothers, but we had a friend who worked uh, as an assistant at Showtime, uh, and we basically had that person dropped one of our scripts in the pile to be read of the development guy just out of nowhere. And it was good enough, I guess, that he called us and was like, wait, you know, who are you guys? What, this you know, like there's inbox. no agent or anything. Like we didn't have any of that, Weird. but we got the meeting and we came in there. We did this, you know, the dog and pony show and we kind of pitched it out, talked about the characters. And he's like, Oh, and what would the, uh, what would the first episode be? What, what might the pilot be like? Oh, <laughs> we didn't know you had to come up with that. <laughs> so we did not know what we were doing, and it quickly became very um, clear that we did not know what we were doing, and we did not sell it, not surprisingly. But the trick to that was, you know, that was that was the pitch, you know, eight years before the one we did it right. So to a certain extent, there's just practice and getting it. Hopefully you can get it right faster than we did. I actually write out a pitch script, and it's usually a 15- to 20-page document, which literally Suddenly, has everything yeah. that I will – and, and yeah. you know what? I'll – Using this uh, sort of format, it's basically what I've done for every pilot I've sold. So I, I'll probably, in apropos of this conversation, sometime in the next week, put them up on my website. So if anybody wants to see what that looks like, uh, you can go look What's at that. Website? This is scripted. It's OKBJGM at dot com. <laughs> OKBJGM dot com. I think that um, I mean I, uh, my my advice about development and pitching is, it sounds like it's going to conflict a little with Javier's and. Um, uh, which so take take your pick because I, I mean I think I think that a lot of what he's saying is, is is stressing the need for you to be confident in the room and if you 
shit your pants because you feel unprepared and it's going to make you flop sweat and stuff and 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 that and that is your way around and then that then that that is good advice i think there's different personalities and different different brain shapes and stuff because i the way that i've always advised people to develop and pitch um is to say that you know you're already an expert on television um uh, because you've watched it an average of six hours a day, and uh, and and you've been alive this long, and, and and more importantly, you're an expert on this hypothetical show that that you're you're going to be pitching because it should be your favorite show in the world, and you've already pitched people your favorite show. You've already, uh, you know, when you went through your X-Files stage at the water cooler, have been the office uh, X-Files guy going like, no, but the thing is, and then in the third episode, and then they do this thing where sometimes they focus on the mythology, but sometimes they, 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 just, they just do a, a one-off or they do Bigfoot, and, um, and you're an expert, uh, and you're pitching the show, and that is what a good pitch sounds like. Like it, and so I always tell people when they're developing, uh, picture a TV screen, uh, picture yourself sitting in front of it. Now, counterintuitively, start with the image of yourself going, holy fuck, this is awesome, <laughs> while you're watching. Now tell me what is making you do that on the screen. Because that's your show. That was what Heat Vision and Jack was for me and Rob. That was that was why we knew ABC would fire us for doing it. It's like we 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 looked at our contract and said they'll give us fifty cents on the dollar if if we just write something they hate. And I said, what are they going to hate? Well, good TV, right? <laughs> our version of it. And we said, what's the best TV show that's ever 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 existed in any hypothetical universe? And the answer was this crazy thing that was part Knight Rider, part uh, uh, Six Million Dollar Man and stuff. Just 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 do that always. You don't have to be nuts to because that's unsellable crap. But I mean, you, I'm, you, your Gilmore Girls can be that too. You're, you you might have a very nice, sensible mainstream tastes, but you be a big fan of it. And if they ask you how much, ga- you know, what the guy does when the gas runs out in the chainsaw, um, they might not be gonna be buying your pitch. Like, like there might there might already be like, nitpicking because they're looking for reasons not to. But more importantly, if if you not knowing what 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 to put, you know, what the guy does when the, when the, when he runs out of gas is a deal breaker for them, they weren't gonna buy the pitch. They weren't like the guy's got a chainsaw for a hand. That sounds awesome to him, or it doesn't. Uh, he gets it, or he doesn't. Doesn't that's 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 the way I've always looked at it. But I've sold actually, probably I, sold a lot less stuff. No, I was going to say I actually I actually sold the pilot to a network which was about a man who becomes the angel of death, and it was turned down uh, as, a, as a as a pilot pickup for having too much death in it. <laughs> <laughs> and I sold him a pilot about uh, it was basically Jack Bauer versus the zombie terrorists, and that was turned down for having too many zombies. So. <laughs> um, but that's a, so when you're developing, you get in that yeah. zone too, and then that's the, that makes the pitch the easiest thing. You go in, you plop down on that couch. Like I said, don't worry about your shoes. Don't worry about your breath or your eye contact. Don't worry about your posture. Um, uh, worry about your love of this show that doesn't exist yet because your, your, uh, your joy is what's going to sell it because these people go to seminars or I don't know what, the, it's like, like covens or something. Um <laughs> 
they're clearly told what that what you're looking for when you're when you're looking for a writer is like a weird scuzzy troll-like creature with an incredible passion for this thing that they're going to discover. They're not looking for like Barack Obama to walk in and press their palm and impress them with his 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 like sort of like funny one-liner about their candy dish. Like they're they're more seduced than you think by the Belushi routine. Uh, John, not Jim. Unless you're the network that put the defenders on the air. And, here's a, and, and one, one more little trick, too, uh, because they are definitely told this in whatever no, like notebooks they study or whatever. Even if, if, you're, if, you're, if the thing you're pitching, if you're more of like a sci-fi person and... Um, and like, like, so it's like an octopus monster, and he travels in time, and each of his legs is a different weapon and stuff. And that's that, that's your passion. Like, it, 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 so it has no it, like, like even just if you have to force it, like, like make it a metaphor for a personal experience. <laughs> like, like make it like say start your pitch with. When I was 32, I went to community college, and here's the thing, and then pitch your show, because they, that, that's like a huge Pavlovian thing for them. They, they, um, they, they, they're told to look for personal, because they, they don't really know what sells. They, what they know is that, like, in the Carsey Werner days, it was like, it became like all about stand-ups coming out and going, well, my neighbor, he comes over, and he talks like this, hey, I'm your neighbor, and, and, and it was like, it was all about their world and their point of view, and that, that hasn't really changed, except for it's not stand-up focused anymore, but it's still, it's all about your point of view, your personal experience. I went through a sloppy divorce, when, or my parents, like, were always fighting, and I always dreamt of this octopus monster that would blah blah blah. I'm sorry. Even even just, that's the one area where I'd say just fucking lie. Like like like, like, like uh, if, if if there is no actual connection because you know there's a there should be a connection in that you think it's awesome and you want to do it and it makes you cry when you think about it. Uh, but but if you have to force like a biographical connection, just do it. I would say because you're selling them not just on the idea that this is a really good idea for a show, but that. That you are the exact right person to write this. Right. Show. That you're not a con artist, too. That you, that you, yeah, because everybody kind right. of can babble about stuff. That's a, I'm pretty good in a room, and I end up tanking half the time when they hire me. Like, and they're always on the lookout for that, that in the wings. Like, so. But it's interesting that you say fucking lie, because in a way, like, that is actually what we do. And, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the confidence game and the first time you sell a pilot, and as, as somebody whose first pilot was an abject failure. Um, you know, and somebody, and, and, and my first pilot was heavily rewritten, and they brought in another executive producer, and all this stuff. It was that. What I found was that after being a network executive for two years, I had become too good at pitching and not good enough at writing. Um, you right. know, I was I was a story editor on The Pretender at the time, and I went in and I went in and I'd heard 250 pitches, so I went in and I sold this this pilot idea, and then they were like, "Great," and I'm like, "Awesome," and they're like, "Well," we, and then and then I got a call a week later. I had my pilot story all broken out and everything, and then I got a call a week later, and they're like, "We know it's called the Van Helsing Chronicles, <laughs> but we." don't think you should be fighting vampires in the pilot and i was like i'm a i'm a story editor on the pretender you want me to come up with a whole other pilot idea in how long two weeks shit you know and and the next thing you know uh i I had been replaced as the writer of my own pilot you know so so a great part of it and this is why again i talk about getting the experiences whether your 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 attitude is you know I, i i'm going to go in and sell this thing because of this reason or that reason or or you need to have a certain mastery of of the form under your belt. You know, you can have written a great spec pilot over the course of a year and a half that got you an agent that got you all this, 
But the, the, the workaday mastery of television writing is something that, again, are you an expert because you've seen television? Absolutely, and I agree with that completely. Just in terms but of development yeah, and pitching. Absolutely. It's, it, but but, but give, yourself, give yourself the latitude to fail once and then have to re-break the entire thing. And if you don't have the mastery to do that, don't go in the room. Please spend some more time in other people's staffs trying to get those jobs um, or even just cr- creating your own material You know because – that is a very expensive failure, and again, it's one that I was very lucky to survive in, in, as early in my career as I had it. That's great advice. All right, let's turn it over to you guys. Uh, you will ask the question. I'll repeat it for the recording, and uh, then we'll have these guys answer. As usual, you know, try to keep it about the process, about the business. Uh, we want to make it so that pretty much anyone can answer these things. Uh, so questions. Uh, the question's about hiring writer's assistants. Uh, and Mo, can we turn the house lights on a little bit, please? Personality-wise, uh, you, you know, it's a, it's a, it's really not a clerical position, but it, it, the, the the heavy lifting of that job is so clerical. I.e., you're transcribing, typing, and organizing, and, and doing the grunt work with file formats and stuff. Um, you, I, I will totally admit, like I'm always looking for somebody that has a little bit of a square vibe to them. So it's it's a better day to wear your glasses than your contacts. Like, like uh, I, I, you know, imagine that you're. I, 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 I'm assuming that that I'm typical of of like the sort of bias there. I think, and it, there's it's, there's no. There's no gender equation at all. It's like there's that personality type that sort of you you go like, oh yeah, this guy this guy's not gonna show up late and hung over. He's um, he's he's very very organized and meticulous and 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 confident. And it's so uh, I I is that does that answer your question? Like what what we're looking for like per- personality wise? I mean you 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 have to you have to know how to type. The, the world, the world's greatest writer, writer's assistant is somebody that we had on the middleman who wound up writing episode eleven, and um, you know the story I'm going to tell. Um, uh, after our, our, you know, ninth or tenth session in the writer's room, I lost track of some grain of thought, and I go up to her computer, and I'm looking at it, and it says, literally, I have witnesses who, who said this it says on the computer. It says, Javi then spends five minutes talking about those blindfold things that he uses to sleep that we all think are a sex thing, but he claims are just to block out the light. <laughs> and I'm like, Margaret, a little less detail on the notes, please. <laughs> you know, but that that kind of detail. I mean, your job as a writer's assistant is to write down everything that it appears is going to be said in the writer's room that is going to be useful later. And developing that filter is an amazing skill. And if you can do that, I mean, you need, you need, but diligence and that kind of otaku-like caring for every detail that might be is is, is crucial. And if you're a very, I mean, because it is the it is the track to becoming a staff writer. Um, and we like it that way. Uh, then there's the political quotient of it. When you're in there, uh, I don't know what advice I could possibly give in this area, but it, you know there is this sort of like tap dance you have to do. You have you have this opportunity. You know you can you can you can sort of pipe up once in a while. And and if you're a smart cookie, and you're going to get a draft because there's actually certain financial incentives in that area anyway. Like 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 the writer's assistant will eventually be given a draft to to, to write, and um, it's a good place to be uh, if you if you just want to. Uh, I, I, but I I know that there are moments when we're brainstorming, and the writer's assistant goes, "Well, you could do this," and I I I I'm just saying like deep down, I go, "Shut up." 
Like, 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 but, but then, it, like, I, I don't know how you're supposed to know when that's going to happen inside of me and when it's not. So, but, but all I know is that there's a difference, I guess. There's, like, moments when I'm like, please say something, somebody. Uh, and then there's moments when it's like, who do you think you're kidding? Typey. The, the other, the other, the other, the other. But you know, usually when I have that response to somebody, it means that they're really good, and I just envy them. Uh, so, but um, you know, the, the way that Margaret uh, Dunlap, who wrote that script for us, and, and and is well on her way toward becoming a a, a fantastic, uh, she's already a fantastic and established writer, is is, you know, I, I I gave a conference at USC, and and she was there, and we spent like twenty minutes afterwards talking about Babylon Five. You know, so it, it, don't schmooze anybody. You know, don't schmooze anybody you wouldn't want to hang out with anyway. You know, like like it's so obvious to me when people like actually don't like me, but they think like I can do something for them, and that they can't wait to get past the pleasantries to go like, "Can I give you my script?" And you're just like, "Oh God, these last five minutes have been painful." And now you ask, it's like, no, it's like if if somebody is not somebody that you could spend twenty minutes talking about Babylon Five or surfboards or meat or whatever it is that you like, <laughs> like just don't try to give them your script because they won't like it anyway. Honestly, like you know, it's like it's like there's there's I go to so many networking things and you know so well when you're being networked and you just want to go like, just leave me. There's somebody there who looks like they like Babylon 5 and instead I'm talking to you about surfboards and meat. You know, so just please, you know. Having briefly been writer's assistants and then it's actually something that we still do now which is just like, be willing to say, I'll do it for whatever stupid thing nobody else wants to do. Like, uh, for the good guys, like, we had to write, like, a one-page version of the the sort of area of the story and submit it to the network. And because the schedule we were on, we'd already broken the the, the entire episode. So it was just, like, recapping the whole thing. Nobody wanted to do it, especially the higher-level writers. We're like, we'll do it. And we wrote almost every one of them. Almost every one, yeah. Because we were just like, we'll do it. Uh, Or, you know, there's, like, a scene that's never going to be in the show, but they need a few more pages of dialogue just for casting. For this, you know, this guy's only got one line, but he needs to say four or five so we can tell if he's a good actor. We'll do it. Uh, and, then, and we were kind of fighting with the writer's assistant over that. Not fighting, but you were like, we'll do it. And he's like, oh. Uh, but yeah, the, the contrary to that is that literally there, there was a writer that, that – uh, a writer's assistant on a show that I worked on. And, and we had some tasks that needed to be done as a research task. And it was like we need to know how many pieces there are in a, in a Volkswagen – in a 1956 Volkswagen engine. So, you know – the, the, the co-executive producer just the writer system goes like could you tonight go and write out what all the pieces are in a, in a Volkswagen just look it up on the internet and bring us a list and he said no <laughs> and it was like and it was like literally at that moment all of us turned to him and we could see like the, the, the shroud of doom with the scythe appear over him <laughs> and he was gone in a week you just you just you can't say no to that kind of thing it doesn't matter if it feels like an imposition at the time it's like dude you know that's your job you know 1125 <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, other questions? Yeah, right here. The question is about incorporating new media into the uh, existing show, into the world of show now. New media, new media is great. I love it. I did the Lost Experience, which is a Lost Online game, which some of you might have played, and I'm sorry if you did. Um, you know, it, it was you know, it was actually quite an ambitious and far-reaching thing that was successful in certain ways and not in others. The flagship is the only thing that matters. Um, you know, if the flagship is good, it'll support the new media. I, I have never had anybody come in and, and actually, no. Th- th- there is one very good exception to that rule, which which is uh, Day One, which was a show that Jesse Alexander sold, where he had the new media component already figured out and it was very well integrated into it. But it's very much of a rarity. Um, f- for most shows, there's just not enough time to figure out how to do new media well with it. So the, the flagship is really the most important thing. If you find yourself working on the new media component. The important thing is that there be enough people to, to execute it successfully. 
um, on the lost experience of the problem with that entire project, which just did not have the bodies in the room. So that's, uh, but I mean, and, and but when you say that, do you mean in terms of the experience of being a writer on it, the experience of how do you get involved with it? I mean, no, what's about, it? I guess it's about being a writer because, like, you know, Battlestar had two in between their series. They yeah. Had two web, web series. You know, I, I've I've always done that stuff for free, and I know that the guild frowns on that and all that. But it's like if you're in a show and they ask you to jump on a grenade, you jump on the grenade. I mean, you just do it and you do the best you can with it, and you try to execute it really great, and you hope that it leads to the next job. And I know that that's contrary to a lot of the thinking in terms of the, the unions and all that. But, you know, if you're a writer's assistant on a show or if you're a staff writer on a show and somebody says, hey, we need a web a webisode or a webinar or a webalon or whatever the hell it is, like, you fucking go write it, you know? Just do it. Uh, yeah, it's a no-brainer to say that this is what TV is becoming. It's trickling into all this other stuff. We're getting our asses kicked by event programming now because – those are the only things that justify people gathering around their TV the way they used to for a fictional narrative show like Cheers or something. Now it's it's if someone's not getting voted off, blah, blah, blah. We, we, the, the reason that's happening is because we're all experiencing television in little chunks and pieces now on our wristwatches and shoelaces. And, 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 and we've become, you know, there's a good – we've become less baby birds receiving this passive one-way transmission and more like actual juvenile birds kind of going and picking and choosing and we – we identify ourselves on our Facebook page by what our favorite things are. And so I think that because people are becoming like that, then the, then characters need to become like that and the the venue in which they're portrayed needs to uh, bend and not break uh, in, 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 uh, in, in deference to that. So uh, the answer is that right now it's impossible to do because, it's, uh, because of politics and bureaucracy. The way that the system is designed right now, you cannot, as much as you want to, and I think that most people in this room probably want to. I'm, I've, I've had a thousand conversations with the, the people who have the same faces that you have and, uh, at, at, at these panels and things. I know we're all sort of – we love TV. We love writing. And if we had a TV show, it would have the kick-assed assest webpage in the world. And it would be very intricately integrated. And there would be Easter eggs in the show that when you looked through a special lens and then <laughs> took that to a Cracker Jack box, you know, the thing would come out and the character would, would give you a good mouth – um, the, 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 and, and then you find out that you can't do that. Number one, you can't do that because there's no time for you to do it. And then the, the, where, so that would mean that it would, someone else would have to do it. That would have to coincidentally have your brain. Like, and that, that person is not working at NBC Digital. Uh, that, that I, I am so sorry, uh, Margaret. Uh, but uh, that, that person is not the person that is, that is filling web pages with content right now. That industry is, has its own momentum. They're, it's the Wild West right now. Everyone's in a switchblade fight. Fuck that lady's from NBC Digital. Um, <laughs> Mm-mm. Uh, go into the payphone. I did. I endow her with a sassy. I did. You know. You know. The, the, what's really interesting is when, when is my do- racism is what's interesting. <laughs> That's what I find interesting. That's my headline. That's my takeaway. I'm gonna buy that lady a drink. No, you're right. And and I don't want to be there for the beating later. So. <laughs> uh, when we did the lost experience, we had a finale that was amazing. It was gonna blow all of your minds away. You were going to get open a candy bar, which we wound up doing, and there would be a code on the candy bar, and then you would use that code to go on the internet. For real? Yeah, <laughs> to go on the internet. You would put the code in. It would give you geocache coordinates, and then everybody oh, would nice. go be sent to a theater where they would watch the film that explained <laughs> the numbers, right? 
Uh, and and this actually is isn't just to, to say that what you're saying it's true. It's like it's like one of the, the problems we had was the NBC le- the, the ABC legal team went, "Are you kidding? What if somebody trips on the way to the theater?" <laughs> and we're like, "What? They go to the theater all the time." And then you know, and so the, the finale wound up being me doing a radio show with a buddy. <laughs> so so if you if so th- that's the other huge problem is we have these amazing imaginations. I think. Uh, and we're trying to figure out ways of thrilling you by making you go and dig up a chest with a candy bar in it. And then the legal department, it's a, short, it's a long way of saying organizations are not agile enough at the executive level to accept the kind of sudden paradigm shifts that it takes to do new media well and to exploit it to its greatest capacity. The people who are doing the best work in that are guys like Fourth Wall, uh, you know, fourth, I think it's Fourth Wall, who, who actually just do ar- args on their own and they, they created I Love Bees and all of that. But, but they do them on a very contained way and they're able to have the agility to, to do it as a way of selling T-shirts or of telling certain types of narratives and all that where a company like, like, NB, like NBC, ABC or CBS just can't go there yet because their legal wonks aren't going to let them do the, the, the 20 most exciting ideas and you're going to wind up with me doing a radio show with a buddy. You know, so that's that's another big problem with it. Until there's a set paradigm that includes money and legal standards and all of that stuff, in order to do those things right, it's it's just always going to be kind of kludgy. You know, what you guys were doing on that show on the internet, is, uh, at least unless I mean, maybe I'm not an expert in every TV show and stuff, so maybe somebody was doing it first. But that was incredibly inspirational. I think it was a huge wake up call for a lot of people. What was possible in terms of the experience being multi platform. Uh, on, on a TV show, uh, the only the, the only other thing about that is that I heard that Tina Fey on Thirty Rock, her assistant did all the web content for Thirty Rock. So when I hired my assistant, I hired a Channel One Hundred and One guy, uh, Dave Seeger, who who ran Channel One Hundred and One for years, who can do anything with a hand camera uh, and 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 cut it together and do, do the whole shebang. So he's terrible at bringing me coffee, but he um, we got some good web content out of it, and and. Even more so now that he quit the assistant job and is now sort of dealing with NBC as a free uh, freelance guy. So it's it's everybody sort of just pushing and it's very. I, I the answer to your question is we all think it's incredibly important and obviously we'd be idiots not to. But right now it's really difficult. So be prepared to like forge your own uh, barn. Our bar- yeah, that that popular forge saying. your own barn. <laughs> be prepared to stoke how many Amish are your you? own jug. <laughs> Uh, I just very, very quickly, uh, I want to go back to what Javi was saying about these, you know, ABC, NBC, Fox, any of these networks are huge corporations. And the people that you're answering to also answer to people and answer to people. And they have these meetings. Yeah, they all have to, they go through their budget and somebody goes, I need 10,000 for staplers and we're going to do this thing. And I mean, you have to envy these people, not envy these people. They have (laughs) terrible, like, it's, yeah, sorry, go Uh, ahead. But I. Which is absolutely right, and and I think a great example of that is what you guys went through with your web series. Do you want to talk about that very briefly? Very briefly, yeah. We we were we sold a, a web series to Fox Fox Digital. Sold uh, is kind of an overstatement. They though, really. paid us seventy five dollars. Seventy five dollars <laughs> each. I don't Do remember. The rates are on you, buddy. That was to write, write and direct. And to direct. Yes. So it was seventy-five for the idea, and then seventy-five for the directing. Oh, that is true. Yeah. Which so we you, split. you counted our writing and our directing right. fee. Yeah. So because actually, what you're, what we're kind of, what I'm kind of hearing, like the writers are too busy. Like they don't, it doesn't pay well. The people at the network don't do it right. Like to me, that sounds like an opportunity from the bottom when you're looking up at it. You know, like. Maybe I can get into that. That's why we did it for 75 bucks. We made a, like three episodes. Totally. They were five minutes. We got to direct it. They put some money into the production enough that there were like real crew members that knew what they were doing and a nice camera. And we're like, hey, now we got something 
for and our then, wheel. And then it was uh, banned. It does not. It does not pay well. But you might get well. You can tell them. Tell them what it was about because the irony is so great. Uh, the, the the series was about a fictional division of the FBI dedicated to stopping copyright theft on the internet. Uh, and uh, basically, if, if you like upload an episode of House, you know the FBI shows up at your door and beats the shit out of you. <laughs> kind of like it's like we sort of compared it like it's uh, sort of the gritty realism of the Shield mixed with the Digital Millennium Copyright Act of 1998. <laughs> it was like our sort of idea, but uh, we we got they gave us money to make it. It looked really good. It, people liked it at Fox until they realized we were making fun of the FBI who was trying to protect Fox's online interests from being stolen. Fox is actually really serious about copy protection. They don't, they it don't kinda, want... It turns out. They don't want you putting house on the internet for real. Finally, the guy that would punch you in the face read it and was like, no, this is not funny. So within moments, it was uh, buried in the annals of uh, the properties that Fox owns and will never get back. Which was perfect because then it's like a thing. Like People are talking yeah. about it. It's like, no, we, and it bounced around in the Fox upper echelon of like... This was a little bit scandalous, which is a good way to get noticed. Yeah. They could not condone our art. <laughs> That's a quote. <laughs> then they did that Banksy thing on The Simpsons. And like, really, guys? Really? Yeah. There's some hypocrisy. You, you, you can say that the, the Simpsons DVDs are made on the heads of unicorns, but you can't put our little web series on. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. We have time for a couple of more questions. Yes, right here. Question is about what gets you through a day. I would, ask, I would add to that. Uh, tell us about the process. Uh, of actually writing your shows. I have the most counterintuitive advice, and it's the exact wrong and different advice from everything you've heard. Because um, people say it's a discipline. You get up, you write every day from 8 a.m. to 12 in the afternoon, and then you'll have 12 novels, and that's how I did it. I I don't write unless I have to write. Now, that doesn't mean that I spend the rest of my time trying to fill my mind with you know books and TV and internet stuff and Facebook and crap. But um, but you know like I I I or if I'm breaking a story or whatever, it's like I mean. I do wait for not inspiration to strike necessarily, but I wait for the critical mass point when I do have to hunker down. And I'm blessed with with the ability to write fairly quickly, so I know once I've written, you know, the the the, the four act breaks on the napkin that I can sit down and bound and, and and put a script out in in a week and have it be a fairly good script. But you know, and and maybe a lot of the not writing that I do is the background processing of that, which some people have to fill that up with journaling or whatever it is. And I think that that what that brings brings to is that. A lot of people tell you write from 8 in the morning to 12 noon, never fail, never waver. And some people like me will tell you wait until you reach critical mass and then put your story down. The bottom line is know thyself is actually the, the, the bigger one. It's, it's, it's know what your process is like and honor it in a, in, in a way that makes sense. If you can't write, don't – for me, it's if I can't write, I don't sit myself – I sound as if they're bashing my head against the wall of it. I just you know, take a step back and wait until the moment is right and then do it. And sadly, sometimes the moment is right at 3 in the morning. Uh, but – you know that's the price that I pay for being able to say no. I'm not going to write today because it's just going to be crap, and I'm background processing something else, and then it all you know comes out. You guys want to add anything? No, I agree with that. That's that's totally true. I think we write I think pretty regularly, but there's definitely times in that period where we're you know just screwing around, and then all of a sudden <laughs> you you're like, oh, that's a good idea, and then and then all of a sudden it's a flurry of writing, you know. There's I think a it's of, a mistake. There's a lot of blue screen of death going on in my head. You know, there's a lot of background <laughs> processing going on. Is I guess what I'm trying to say. I think it's a mistake to get too hung up on one one project. You know, like you don't want to write that same screenplay you've been working on for five years, and it's you know you just you got another draft, and if I can just fix my Act Three, it's like, you know, if, you know, if it's not really working, if it doesn't, the ones our scripts that have been the best have all fallen together pretty nicely. So when you get stuck on one, you have to really bang your head for a while. But once you're done banging, you know, do the next thing. Write three, and one of them will be good. 
Like you have to, you have to actually write, like, and it sucks. Like I don't, I don't like writing. I love it. I love it. A lot. That when you're like you're staring at the, that helps actually too. There's you're no staring one... at the blank page. Your eyes are bleeding. Like that's not writer's block. That's writing. Yeah. There's no one. There's no one million dollar script. They're all million dollar scripts, and you just have to keep keep executing. the The thing that you're hired for is your ability to execute a format, your ability to execute your own pitch, and you don't get that unless you continually write. It's that simple. It's it's like. You know, the, 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 you don't want to be hired to, to, to create a bookcase and then not be able to build the bookcase. Even if you get hired and you build the most basic bookcase, your level of craft has to be at that level. And that requires practice and it requires that you continually exercise it, even if that entails letting your background processing and knowing that that's what happens. Yeah, this. I mean, it's a there's a there's a conveniently lazy philosophy to to writing that I that that, that I use too, which is that uh, even though this sounds like the most pretentious thing in the world, I, to me it's the opposite of pretense because there's it's it's that you're not the one doing the writing. There's something else that wants to be written, which uh, <laughs> but it really is true, and that's why that thing that you've been working on for five years it stinks because this guy that isn't. Uh, you know, magical. This just this dude that you are that came out of your mom and just like, like <laughs> likes wheat thins and video games. Like that guy cannot be empowered uh, and have anything good come of it, except for maybe the relationship with their lover or you know their dog or a glass of scotch or something. That guy, that guy needs to be relegated to those fields. And it is this thing that 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 operates through us in these spontaneous moments of joy and creation that needs to be as enabled as possible. So you need to you find whatever tricks you have to find to trick your personality into not being there at all. Um, I, I, I also don't buy into this, like, get up at 9 in the morning writing your dream journal and stuff like that. I, I, I find that very suspicious because when I write, I start weeping. It's a bummer. Like, I don't know who would want to schedule that. It feels like... <laughs> prison rape it's a it's a god is your cellmate that's what that's what writing is it's like you're in jail and god is your cellmate and he's, and he's gonna do whatever he wants he's always the husband yeah yeah oh yeah your, your survival is dependent on your ability to turn your brain off and say yes sir and get on your knees because and you'll enjoy it eventually that's all we have time for folks i need to thank my Yes, Javier Grillo, Mark Swatch, Aaron Ginsberg, Wade McIntyre, and Dan Harmon. Check out the uh, Nerd Melt website to find out about the May panels. We're starting on May 15th, uh, and you will exit through the main store. Thank you guys so much for coming. Now leaving Nerdist.com.